Okay. If you have Bibles with you today, please open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, boy, I, I was really feeling the Spirit of God moving upon me uh, during worship uh, this morning. Uh, a few thoughts came to mind. I came in this morning and I, I felt a sense of, um, of heaviness. And, yes. and my sense is, Lord, is this, is this something going on inside of me? Is this something in the atmosphere? Is this something in the people? And my, my sense is that the Lord said, yeah, all, all of the above. <laughs> and, um, and so I just began to pray. And, and this is what I, I was sensing. Is as worship went on, it felt like it was just chipping away. It was just chipping away at the, at the heaviness and, and begin to lighten the load. And I think sometimes that's what worship does for us. That as we come before God and we offer him our worship and praise that, isn't it so incredibly kind of him that he would lift a burden from us? I was remembering this morning, many years ago, when Nadine and I were in West Virginia, a friend of mine preached a sermon called The, uh, the Powerful Place Versus the Powerless Place. And for most of us, as human beings, as Christians even, we have, we have great value and respect for the powerful place. We like when we're on the mountaintop and, and when we feel strong and when everything makes sense and, you know, our faith is just, you know, bubbling over. We, we love those powerful times. But if we're completely honest, we don't always live there. There, some, there are powerful times in our journey, and then there are the powerless times. Um, and those are harder. And I felt this morning that some people came in today and they came in today not feeling like the triumphant, victorious believers in Jesus Christ that we are, but some came in today, myself included, feeling he, you know, heavy laden. I know that um, on Daystar tomorrow they're going to have a memorial service for John Paul Jackson, and, and I'm, I'm just surprised at how much that's laying heavy on my heart. And I, just wanting to shake it off this morning and... And just, I mean, just to be completely transparent, I'm, I'm just I'm having a hard time doing that. And so this scripture verse came to mind, and it, it blessed my heart. And by the end of worship, I felt like things were lighter. I just wanted to share it with you. Maybe it would bless you as well. And then I'll get to my sermon. It's from, this is from Matthew 11. Famous verses. You're all familiar with them, I'm sure. Where Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest for my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Lord, I just thank you today that you, you don't shun us when we're in the powerless place. That you don't accuse us you don't spank us and slap our hands and tell us we're bad Christians. Instead, your word says, come to me. You, you welcome us. You invite us to come. And so all of us today, Lord, if it's, maybe it's just me, but if it's not just me, Lord, for anyone else that feels like they're not in a powerful place, but the powerless place today, Lord, I pray that just what your word says would transpire in that right now, that, that we come to you and we take your yoke, which is easy and light, that we would learn from you and that you would lift from us, oh God, the burdens that keep us heavy laden. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen? Okay, that was extra. No extra charge. I've been, um, I've been preaching a series on the topic of grace, and today will be my fifth in the series, and I want to look at um, verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open up, and I'll begin at verse 1. Uh, I'll read through verse 10. This is St. Paul writing. He says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained. I'll go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I'll boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, but I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think of me, think more of me than is warranted But what I do or say, or because of these surprisingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Lord, I thank you for your word, transparency in your word. Thank you, Lord. The honesty of your word. I thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray that that you'd use me today, even in my weakness, to uh, be a blessing to your people. Lord, I pray that you'd give me words of life and that it would truly be life for my friends today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God's so good. So, just talk a little bit about the context of Second uh, Corinthians here. It was written by Paul, probably somewhere about the years 55 to 56 AD. And the theme of, his, of the letter comes from today's main text, that there's strength and weakness. A little bit of backstory might be helpful to understand the text I just I read to you. Most of this letter was devoted to Paul explaining uh, his actions since he'd written his first letter, 1 Corinthians. Um, and so it's important, I think, it would be important for us to have a, a clearer understanding or a, an idea of what actually happened uh, in, that, in that time period. The problem is this. <laughs> we really don't know. The best that we have to offer is, well, I guess, the best guess. Uh, we know that Paul promised to visit the Corinthians a second time. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 5 to 6 makes that clear. Um, and this, this visit apparently resulted in severe conflicts uh, among the people, uh, especially referring to false apostles, what some translations would call super apostles. There was a, there was a power struggle. <laughs> there, was, 
there was, uh, there was conflict among the people. Um, Paul had been vigorously, viciously attacked. But I think what really hurt was the fact that the Corinthians didn't come, they didn't rally to his defense. They didn't stand up for him. So this letter was written um, to prepare them for a third visit. Um, and I think the background or the backstory of this text gets a little bit more complicated for two factors. Paul refers to a painful letter he wrote. But unfortunately, this painful letter that he refers to, it was, was, um, it was never saved. It wasn't preserved. There's no record of it. He refers to it, but we don't have uh, that letter. Things would be a little bit clearer, I think, if we did. Um, so that complicates understanding a little bit. The second is this. If you take a look at the at Second Corinthians as a whole, I think it could actually be two different letters. It's saved for us as one document, but I I think the potential is there when when you read the tone of how the letter is written that it could actually be two letters that were somehow uh, brought together. Um, there's a fierce tone uh, communicated in chapters 10 to 13, which is in contrast more to the uh, reconciling tone of chapters 1 through 9. So I think it could, it could be two different letters. Um, and so, you know, according to this view, chapters 1 to 9 were written on the, the basis of Tyrus's, uh, Ty, uh, Tice's uh, report that the situation had been resolved, this conflict. Um, however, uh, when he returned to Corinth, he found that these quote-unquote super apostles were back in charge. We were looking this morning at 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 10, but this is verse 11. It says, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, uh, for I am not in the least inferior to quote super apostles, even though I am nothing. Obviously, there's some type of challenge. There's some type of conflict. They've not come to his defense, and it has something to do with this people group that I think sarcastically are being referred to as super apostles. <laughs> who, who knows? Maybe they refer to themselves uh, that way. And so on hearing this, Paul wrote another letter, which is, I'm thinking, chapters 10 to 13. Some interesting characteristics in, the, in this writing. The letter... Uh, as much as any of the others that Paul wrote, allows us to see his passion for the gospel, his deep love for the churches, the pain he felt over misunderstanding, rejection, and attack, and the cost of his sufferings. So uh, today's text, uh, that gives you some of the, the context in which these next verses are being written. It's, it's a rich text. It's a, it's a full text. I could, there's so much I could share this morning, but I really want to focus in on, on verse 9. It, it's easy for a preacher just to take one verse out of context and just speak on that. There's something inside of me, the teacher inside of me, that feels like I've got a responsibility to kind of set the table. You know, It's like if you came to my house and we were going to have hamburgers or french fries, I could just put the hamburger on the table and the french fries on the table next to it. It might be nicer if you had a plate and a fork and a knife and a napkin. So sometimes I feel like I've got to set the table before I present the meal. And so verse 9 really wants to be the meal. Yet let me just make a couple of comments in verses 1 to 8. You guys tracking with me? 
All right. Um, so Paul, this is great text. Paul's talking about this, this man who's gone to the third heaven, in the body or out of the body, I don't know. And, and there's been some debate over, well, who is this man? Well, I think if you read these verses together, it's pretty clear that the man that Paul's referring to is himself. Verse 6 uh, to, to verse six and 7, at least the first half of 7, it says this, Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain. Why? So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I say or do, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. These great revelations that Paul received is when he was taken up into the third heaven. What's the third heaven? Well, I've heard it explained this way. The first heaven is the atmosphere in which we live, the air that we breathe from here until the clouds. That's, that's the first heaven. The second heaven is where the prince of the power of the air resides. It's, a, it's, a, it's the dominion of the enemy. The third heaven is up above that. It's the place, uh, it's the spiritual domain. It's the realm uh, where God and his heavenly beings uh, are in command. So Paul is saying that he, he, he didn't just have an experience here on earth. He didn't have an experience in the second heaven that would somehow be demonically influenced, but he was taken up into the very realm of God. That, that's one ex explanation for third heaven. Paul had a heavenly experience. He was trans translated, as it were, from earth into heaven. John in Revelation 4.1 says uh, he, he saw a door open in heaven and it said, come up here. He looked up and he went up. He went up into it. This is a spiritual experience. Uh, recorded in scripture. So I think here uh, in, in 2 Corinthians uh, 12, the, the man that Paul's saying, in the body or out of the body, I don't know, kind of awkward, he would, he would repeat that the way he did. But he's really talking about himself. I can tell you as somebody who's experienced visions that there are times when visions can be so intense that I'm not really quite certain if this was in the body or out of the body. It's as if everything before me just kind of disappears and you feel like you're in a whole different place. Other times, it's not nearly as intense. I'm seeing things, experiencing things in the spirit, but it's kind of like, it's like looking at a screen that's translucent, and I can look right through it and see everything else that's going on. So I, can kind of, I understand a little bit, I think, what Paul's saying here. So Paul's clearly referring to himself. What other comments I want to make on these first eight verses? What is the thorn in Paul's flesh? Man, there's been lots and lots of sermons written over the years trying to define, and I've heard some crazy theories. But what, what do we know from the text? Well, we know that this thorn is a messenger of Satan because that's how Paul refers to it. It's a messenger of Satan. Who gave Paul this thorn? Well, it's Satan's messenger, so my best guess is that Satan gave it to him. Why was it given? Well, the text makes it clear to, tor to torment him because of these surpassingly great uh, revelations. But here's the $64,000 question. What exactly is this messenger of Satan. We'd like to know. Maybe you feel like you have thorns. I know sometimes I feel like I do. <laughs> it's like, have you ever had a splinter? I mean, even a little splinter. It's like, you've got to get that thing out. It's annoying. You get one in your foot. It's like you can't even walk, right? Imagine a thorn. Okay. So what exactly is this messenger of Satan? Is it, is it a demonic spirit? Well, it could be. I think that's a possibility. 
Or is it people who oppose Paul and his surpassingly great revelations? Well, in my humble opinion, I think that's probably the case. I think it fits better into the context of the whole verse. Listen to verse 10. He says, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight. This is after he describes having this thought. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Now to me, as I read this, that kind of sounds like people stuff. That sounds like human dynamics, where this messenger of Satan wasn't sickness or disease or illness. Or, you know, I've heard other wild theories. I just think it's, it's the conflict that the context of this whole letter is written about, this, this clashing between uh, Paul and his group of people and these super apostles, whoever they might be, and their following. That, I think it's people stuff. I think the, the thorn in his flesh that Paul desperately wanted removed was conflict with other, with other believers. And personally, I can testify to the fact that sharing visions sometimes makes people very excited. Sometimes they're very excited in a positive way, and sometimes they're very excited, well, in a less than positive way. So, I could be wrong, but whoever or whatever the thorn represents, whatever, whatever it specifically was, maybe only Paul himself will know for sure, Paul pleaded three times, God, take this from me. So let's pick up, let's pick up from God's response in verse 9. But he said to me, for my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Such powerful verses. I want to focus on, on the, the sentence that Paul says is God's response to him. Let's, let's take the remainder of this morning's message and look at that. That one sentence, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. A few different translations. If you'd like to do some easy Bible study, one of the best ways um, that I would recommend is go to a website, say like Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible, and, uh, and you can gain some key insights just by looking at the various translations that are out there. In English, I think on Bible Gateway, you could have 30, maybe more than 30 different translations of uh, the scripture in English. And so sometimes just by reading different um, translators' take on the verse, you can gain some keen insights. Let me just offer a few to you today. From the New Living Translation, it says, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Kind of like that. Simple, easy to, easy to apply. The message, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Here's an unusual translation called the Emphasized Bible. It's, it's really hard to find them in print, but I've, I found a few links online. And every once in a while, he just gives a little spin on things uh, that I like. And, and this was good today. He says, sufficient for thee is my favor. For my power in weakness is made complete. I like the word complete. And then you, got, you, know, you always got to look at the Amplified because it's going to give you probably more variations than anybody else. It says, my grace, 
My favor and loving kindness and mercy is enough for you, sufficient against any danger, and enables you to bear uh, the trouble <laughs> manfully. Does that offend anybody? <laughs> I was thinking, wow, I might have to update that. <laughs> for my grace, my favor, loving kindness, and mercy is enough for you, sufficient against any danger, and enables you to bear the trouble manfully. For my strength and power are made perfect, fulfilled, and completed, and show themselves most effective, effective in your weakness. Wow, so there's a lot there. There's a rich, rich text, this one phrase this one sentence statement from God to Paul as a response to his pleading. All right, we got a few key words in this text. Again, another way to do study is look at a few different translations and then just highlight what, what are the main words, what are the key words here, and, do, and just do a little research into you know, what those words might mean. Sometimes you, you pick up a few gems. I would say the, there are five key words in the sentence. It would be grace and sufficient and power and perfect. And weakness, right? Those seem like, like the key words. The word grace here is, is the same word we've been looking at for a while. It's charis. And it means that which affords joy or pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. Grace is a good thing. There's all good stuff there. It means goodwill. It means loving kindness. It means favor. It also means a gift. This is something that's, that's a gift for you. How about sufficient? I like the word sufficient. Look in Strong's Concordance, and it means unfailing strength. It means to be enough, to be satisfied, and to be contented. You know what it's like to not be contented? Do you know what it's like to not have enough? Do you know what it's like to not be satisfied? We all do. This is the exact opposite of that. When he says sufficient, when the word sufficient is used, it means that there's nothing lacking. His power. If you've been in a spirit-filled church for any time in your life, at some point you've heard a message on this word power, which is the word dunamis. Dunamis power, where we get the English word dynamite. It's an explosive, explosive power. And it means a variety of different things. It means strength and power and ability, it means uh, the power that resides in a thing by, the, by virtue of its very nature. It's the power to perform miracles. It's moral power, power for living uh, an excellent life. It's power and influence that's associated with riches and wealth. It's the power of resources that arises from having the strength in numbers, it means that kind of power. And it also refers to the power of an army or the power of force. This is, some, this is significant power. It's power in just about any way that you could define power positively. And this power is made perfect. Now, I don't like the word perfect, but I like what it means here. In a performance-based um, culture which we live in, and in many churches which are performance-based, we hear perfect, I hear perfect, and this is what I think. It's, it's a bar that I'll never attain. I just can't get that high. How could I possibly be perfect? I can't be perfect in a single day. I think I mess up perfect from the moment I wake up as I traverse to the washroom. Something happens 
in those few steps, and I've already blown perfect for the day. How about you? I can't do perfect. But I don't think that's what perfect means here. I think it means this. It means fulfillment. It means to make something complete, to make someone complete, to make you whole, to make you full. You are not whole in our brokenness and my brokenness. We're not whole, right? There's something missing. There's lack. There's missing pieces. But his power is made whole. He fills in the gaps. He fills in the voids in our weakness. A weakness here. That weakness that he's referring to could be a physical weakness in the body. It could be weakness of the soul, our, our mind, our will, our emotions. But it simply means the lacking of strength, either the lack of strength to understand something, the lack of strength to do great things, the lack of strength to restrain corrupt desires, or the lack of strength necessary to bear up on the trials and trouble, which is probably the, the, the way Paul, uh, in the writing of it, what the reference was to there. So if I were to write my own translation of the scripture, as I look at these different translations, as I look at the definitions of these five different key words, the Tom Zawacki version of the Bible might take 2 Corinthians 9 and say it this way, my favor and loving kindness is exceedingly and abundantly more than enough for you in this situation. Because my dynamic, supernatural power will fulfill you, making you whole and complete in your body and your soul. I, that would be my translation. Give me another hundred years long, I'll get the rest of the book done too. <laughs> Can you see that there's a culture clash here, that this is counter-culture? This is counterintuitive to how we live our lives on earth, how we live our lives and how we interact in our, in our families, in our schools, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods. This is not the way the world operates, right? In the world, I mean, there's a clash between the world's ways and the kingdom's ways. In the kingdom, up is down, but down is up. He who humbles himself, right, will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled. First is last, and the last will be first. And the greatest among you is servant of all. Those who love their life will lose it, but those who lose their lives will find it. And the weak are strong. God's ways, listen, his ways are not our ways. And sometimes we struggle with this because we've been conditioned our whole lives. To not be weak, or down, or last, or a servant, or to lose anything. Well, everything that we do, it trains us just the opposite. And so we come into relationship with this amazing God, and we're stunned by the fact that he doesn't do things the way we do. And sometimes we pray, and we have certain expectations, and we're confused, maybe disappointed, when his answers for us are not what we hoped that they would be. And so this is how it is with grace. You know, we're so conditioned to earn favor by our behavior. And that system, it, it works in the world, but it doesn't work with God. Grace, by its very nature, cannot possibly be earned. It's a gift. It's a free gift. And it has no strings attached. So 
back to verse 9 as it's written in the New International Version. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It begins with the words, but he said to me. So Paul pleaded with God. God had a response. Now, I don't think the answer was initially what Paul had been hoping for. Ever felt that way? <laughs> but still, God had a response for Paul. And his response was, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So instead of removing this thorn, whatever it is, instead of removing it from Paul's life, instead God offered grace. And that grace was more, more than enough. Now, understandably, Paul was desperate. His, his repeated pleading is, is, is a clue to that. He was desperate to have this burden removed. But you know there are two ways to remove a burden. One is to, is to lighten the load, to remove the load. The other is to strengthen the shoulders. And so if I'm in Paul's shoes, I'm thinking, Lord, lighten the load. Take the load off of me. I don't want this load anymore. Remove the burden. Remove the thorn. But God's response was different. He strengthened Paul in his weakness. He strengthened him with his own strength, and he did it with grace. Either way, if God would have removed the burden or strengthened him by grace, the burden's removed, right? It's no longer a burden. But God chose to strengthen him. So what do you do in the middle of a sermon when a prophetic... Can you... I'm, uh, I'm in the pulpit right now in front of my church, and I said, I said what do you do when a, when a friend who's a prophet calls you and you're sitting in church? And so I just figured I would answer the call. How you doing, man? Oh, hey, hey, I've been to the airport. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you, have a, you have a word from the Lord for our people? Yeah. <laughs> no, huh? Yeah. So how, how about I call you back later? Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Uh, <laughs> I love you. I love you too, man. I, I want to talk to you anyway. We'll, we'll talk later. <laughs> Bye now. <laughs> Powerful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Thought they no, no, no. Thank you, Jim. Jim Driscoll's really good friend. One, probably one of the most gifted seers. Um, I. I personally know, just an amazing guy. And one of the things I love about him, since he just called, is um, he has incredible wisdom. He um, has wisdom and understanding. I remember earlier on in my journey, God would give me these incredible revelations. I'd see all kinds of stuff and I'd record it all. My revelation level was high. Understanding level was really low. It's like, Jim, I got all this stuff. I'm writing it all down. It's amazing. I'm being touched by God when he shows me stuff. I said... I'm clueless when I'm trying to figure out what it means. And, and he was so encouraging to me. He said, he, said, right, he said, worry about understanding later. He said, just record it now. And then he prayed for me. He prayed that God would, would bless me, that there would be an impartation so that understanding would come. And i got to tell you this. It got better from that day forward. After he prayed for me, when God would show me stuff and I'd go back and look at the other stuff he showed me, they, they, the picture became clearer. So I really appreciate Jim and... And um, he's, he's in the airport now. He's flying to the, to the memorial service for John Paul Jackson. And so I've been wanting to talk to him. Anyway, back to my sermon. So the grace of God is sufficient. Scripture tells us that. Matter of fact, Paul's telling us that God himself told him 
my grace is sufficient for you. Well, his grace is sufficient for Paul. His grace is sufficient for us. I don't know. Am I the only one? Sometimes I have a hard time believing that his grace is sufficient. There are times where I only get to the place where I actually believe that his grace is sufficient when I run out of all my strength. When I realize I'm no longer sufficient. I've done everything I know how to do. I've used all the, the tricks in my bag. I've, everything experiences and, and training has offered to me. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, and nothing works. And sometimes it's only then that I turn to God. And, and, and I do the deep theological prayer. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. Right? <laughs> you pray that prayer, right? I think for many of us in the North American culture... Um, our own sufficiency becomes a huge obstacle. It's, over the years, I've pastored some people who are incredibly gifted and talented. They have lots of strengths, lots of ability. They can do a lot of different things and do it very, very well. And for some of those people, it's, it's very hard for them to trust God because very rarely do they have to. I remember uh, an Episcopal minister. I went to a conference at his church in Darien, Connecticut. His, his name escapes me right now. He was a big guy. He was very funny. Now, Darien, Connecticut, wealthy, money place. They got lots of money, like multi-million dollar houses. And so he says, I take over this church, and he says, it's a church of self-made men who worship their creator. <laughs> he said they, they had very little understanding that they had need for God because they had plenty. They can make it happen on their own. But I tell you what, when you're tapped out, when you've tried all the tricks in your bag, when all your money is gone and you can't make it happen, it's in those times when we finally come to the realization of our insufficiency that we can discover the sufficiency of God. Unfortunately, it seems for some, only when God becomes our last resort. And we discover that in his great kindness, that truly his grace really is more than enough for us in our weakness. I think people who are recovering addicts, they seem to know this uh, all too well. And sometimes I wonder if in the West, if we aren't addicted to our strengths and to our resources and our capabilities. Okay, let's, let's look at this, this verse, um, at least the first part of it. My grace is sufficient for you. I want to look at it a word at a time. Let's emphasize a different word. And then, um, then we'll close in prayer. Okay, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, grace is the favor and the love of God in action. It means he loves us and he's pleased with us. That's what it means, that he loves us and he's pleased with us. It's not on the basis of performance. It's not on the basis of how good you are. It's not on the basis of how sinful you are. It's not on the basis of attendance or giving or you know, showing up at weekly groups. It's not on that basis. It's not on our righteousness. It's not on our unrighteousness. It's on solely on his grace. It means he loves us and he's pleased with us because it's his nature as a loving father to love his children and to be pleased with them. That's grace. That's probably mind-blowing for some of us. But wait a minute. But wait a minute. What about, what about nothing? What about nothing? It's, grace is love with no strings attached. That's good news. Do you need good news today? God loves you, no strings attached. 
His love for you never wavers. And it's because of his grace. On your best day, he loves you 100%. On your worst day, he loves you 100%. When you are in the midst, fully anointed by his spirit, ministering to another person, he loves you 100%. When you are in the midst of sin, his love for you remains the same. He loves you 100%. Guys, that's grace. That's not the way the world operates. He's better than you ever knew he was. His love is enough for us. My grace is sufficient for you. Then he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Whose grace? Well, it's the grace of Jesus. His love, his favor are more than enough. Think about it. Has Jesus ever failed at anything? <laughs> He's never ever failed. He's perfect. Everything he did worked out. His grace, his grace is enough for you. It's sufficient for you. And now remember this. Jesus is familiar with thorns. He knows what thorns feels like. He knows what it's like to be weak. And not only does he know thorns, he knows suffering. And he cares for you. And he loves you. The verse says that my grace is sufficient for you. It is right now. Not that it will be someday. Right now, at this moment, grace is sufficient. Maybe you're sitting there today and you're thinking something had to change. And then his grace would be enough. But that's just not true. The scripture says that his grace is sufficient for you right now. Maybe you thought that grace was sufficient. Or that it may be sufficient at some other time. But not right now. You know what? We need to know that his grace is sufficient in the now. In the midst of our trial, of our trouble, our circumstances. When we're feeling that overwhelming, draining sense of weakness. His grace is sufficient. Spurgeon wrote, It's easy to believe in grace for the past and for the future. But to rest in it for the immediate necessity is true faith. Believer, it is now that grace is sufficient. Even at this moment, it is enough for thee. His grace is in this instant, in the very present, no matter what your circumstances are, his grace is currently, immediately available and is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Absurd to actually think about it, but if you can look at it from this perspective, do you see the, the humor in this situation? Is anything from God insufficient? Of course it would be sufficient. It would be more than sufficient. It would be exceedingly and abundantly more than sufficient. Of course his grace is sufficient for little old me. How absurd, absurd to think that it could be anything else but sufficient. It's as if we're some small fish swimming in the ocean and we're concerned that we might drink it dry, you know. As the wonderful worship song says, grace is an ocean. And we're all sinking. The grace of our crucified, risen, exalted, triumphant Savior, the Lord of all glory, his grace is surely sufficient for you and me. And don't you think it's rather modest of God to even use the word sufficient? My grace is sufficient for you. I think there's, a, I think there's a, a twins of humor in there. 
And this. We'll finish. This and I got a quote. So my grace is sufficient for you. I'm so glad that when God said this word to Paul, he didn't say my grace is sufficient for Paul the Apostle. I'd have found some loophole in there. I'd have thought to myself, well, we're talking Paul, right? He wrote most of the New Testament. He's one of God's favorites. So of course his grace is sufficient for Paul, but what about me? I'm just some schlep who's trying to make it through life here. But his grace is sufficient for you and for me. God made it broad enough for all of us. Think about it. Are you beyond his grace? You're not beyond his grace. Are you so different? In scripture, Paul refers to himself as the worst of sinners. You know, he actually hunted down and killed Christians. Did you ever hunt down and kill a Christian? <laughs> you ever stone somebody to death? You ever travel to other towns? You ever go over to Summerside and say, we're going to take out a few Christians in Summerside? What are you doing this afternoon? <laughs> Want to take a ride? <laughs> you never did that. Paul was a terrorist. Saul of Tarsus, before he became Paul, he was a terrorist. He was the Osama bin Laden of his day. Chasing down people who believed differently than him and killed them for it. God's grace is sufficient for Paul. God's grace is sufficient for you. It's more than enough. Is the triumphant grace of the Lord Jesus Christ sufficient for you? You bet it is. You bet it is. There are some of you here today, you feel weak. I want to encourage you today. His grace is enough. Let me read you a quote from David Guzik on his uh, commentary on this text. It was helpful in putting this, this message together. This is, what, this is what the commentator says. He says, think about this man, Paul. Was he a weak man or a strong man? The man who traveled around the ancient world spreading the gospel of Jesus despite the fiercest persecutions, who endured shipwreck and imprisonment, who preached to kings and slaves, who established strong churches and trained up their leaders, was not a weak man. In light of his life and accomplishments, we would say that Paul was a very strong man. But he was only strong because he knew his weaknesses and looked outside of himself for the strength of God's grace. If we're going to live lives of such strength, we also must understand and admit our weaknesses and look to God alone for the favor, approval, and the work of grace that will strengthen us for any task. It was the grace-filled Paul who said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's pray. Who needs grace today? Why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes if you wouldn't. You need grace today. You, you feel like, I said earlier, you feel like you've come today in the weak place, in the powerless place. If that's you, just pop your hand up and I know we can pray for you, for you guys. Thank you. Who needs grace for your thorns? Got those things irritating you, just kind of pressing in. Well, let's pray. Father, we come boldly before your throne of grace today. We come to you, Lord, not powerful, but powerless. We come to you this morning, not in our strengths, but in our weaknesses, not with our capabilities, 
but with our lack. Oh, God. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Oh, God. We believe. We confess that your grace is sufficient. We believe that your power is indeed made perfect in weakness. But Lord, we ask that you would demonstrate that reality in our lives. You come and be strong where we're not strong. You be strength in our weakness. Lord, come and make us whole where we have imperfections, where there are voids, where there are gaps. Lord, I pray that you would come yourself and fill in all those holes and all those voids and all those gaps until we're whole, until we're fulfilled, until we're made perfect. Do it, oh God. Do it, oh God. Lord, I pray that not only this week, but even this very day, as, as we navigate the journey in front of us, show us, oh God, your strength. Come and be mighty. Come and be strong in our midst. Do it, oh God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, we love you guys. We pray you have an awesome week. And uh, we'll see you next Sunday.